Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Am I confident that God is able to do what he said he would do? Do I believe? Am I overly persuaded that he will do what he's promised to do? Because he promised that he would never leave us or forsake us. So if that promise is true, am I overly persuaded that that is true, that he will not leave me? Or are there just moments in time like, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if I'm overly persuaded about that. Uh, against all hope, Abraham believed that God would do what he had promised he would do. And Abraham waited year after year. God had promised him that he would have a son. He and Sarah struggled with infertility for years and years and years. And they'd finally given up hope, and then God gave him a promise. No, you will have a child. And he waited, 75, 80, 85, 90, 95, nothing. But Abraham was persuaded that God would do what he had promised he would do. And at 100 years of age, He's given a newborn. My grandfather's going to be 96 in June. He lives independently. He still drives his own car, does his own thing. He's 96. I can't imagine giving him a newborn baby to raise. <laughs> and yet there is Abraham, 100 years old. Abraham, against all hope, was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. I don't know about you, but sometimes... I wonder to myself, Donald, do you, are you persuaded, fully persuaded that God will do what he said he would do? It's because sometimes I look around and I just see my circumstances and I feel like God's nowhere to be found. Well, we're going to take the next few weeks to study a book that is so strange that one may be tempted to think, why is this book even in the Bible? Some would describe it as a godless book. So why is it there? In fact, when I first heard that description, I thought, oh, that's a little harsh. And yet you read these 10 chapters, these 167 verses, and you're going to come to notice there's not one mention of God in the book. So what in the world is a book like that even doing in the Bible if it doesn't even mention the name God. It seems so strange, so weird that a book like that would be included in the Bible. And there are portions of this book that we're going to say that are so shocking at times. But though God's name is not mentioned, let me tell you, his handprint is all over it. Anybody know the book I'm referring to? The book of Esther. One of only two books in all the Bible that bears a woman's name. 66 different books in the Bible, and only two carry a woman's name. And what we're going to learn together, that God will often use the most unlikely of people to accomplish his greater purpose. If you and I had grown up in the neighborhood that Esther grew up in, there's not one of us would have said, oh, one day that lady, that young girl, will be in a place of power and influence. Nobody I mean, first of all, she's an orphan. <laughs> her cousin brought her into the house and, and raised her as one of his daughters. She's living in a land of captivity. Nobody would have said, hey, this, this young girl is going to be somebody someday. 
But what is so amazing is that she rises to a place of power and influence like none other lady. Somehow she rises to the place of position that she, she changes all of Jewish history. See, there was a period in time when the Jewish people, genocide was going to happen. A king had made a law and a decree and sealed it and said, wipe out every Jew. On one particular day, you have the right to just go ahead and kill whoever you want that's Jewish and then take all of his stuff. The law had been made. It was the law of the Medes and Persia. And once a law was made, there was no way to change it. And yet, God uses an orphan girl to change the course of history. I don't know who you think of when you think of women that are influential and powerful. I don't know, maybe you might think of Oprah Winfrey. She, she's certainly influential. Uh, maybe Lady Gaga. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres, uh, Beyonce maybe, uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, Angela Merkel, uh, R.K. Rowlings. And in their own right, they're all very influential women, but Esther is in a league all by herself because she influences the most powerful man in the world by changing his mind about genocide. Because Xerxes had already signed the law. It was going to happen. And then God uses an orphan girl. I can't fully explain enough um, how shocking that she would be chosen to change the course of history, that she was part of God's greater plan. And so I thought, I'm going to show a video that may help you to get a better understanding what it's like when you, people are totally shocked that God would use that person. Take a look at the screen. You may remember this. I you probably remember that from a few years ago. Susan Boyle steps onto the stage, obscure, I mean, 47, unemployed, living in a village, a little socially awkward when she walked onto the stage, and she blew everyone out of the water. That's the story of Esther. Out of obscurity comes this orphan girl. And God does amazing things. That, in fact, it blows us out of the water. I mean, all of us would have said... God, I never saw that coming. I didn't see that coming at all. God is, is everywhere in this book, even though his name is not even mentioned. So when you ask, where is God? The author of Esther would say, where is God not? God is, it's true that he, he, he does oftentimes exercise his his uh, sovereignty on the front stage, in the spotlight, through miracles and wonders and signs, like the parting of the Red Sea, when the sun stood still, when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. But he often, he frequently exercises his sovereignty from behind the curtain. Doesn't always put a showmanship for all to see. He's not always in the center ring, but God is still in the business of miracles, even though it may not be flashy. He can work as much through circumstances and human efforts as he can through the water coming out of a rock or a pillar of fire. See, the complete absence of God in this text is the genius of this book. Because God is the biggest piece of hidden information in the book. In a time when Esther was written, the biggest question that was being asked by the Jewish people is, where is God? 
especially when that law had been made, that they're all up to be killed. God, where are you? Where are you? We're your promised people. I thought you loved us. This is the question that's being asked by every Jew. Where's God in this mess? And as we make our way through this book, I know, I believe we're going to discover together that God has created each and every one of us with a destiny that has been especially designed for us. And it will take courage and it will take perseverance to reach our destiny. You see, Mom, you were born for such a time as this. Dad, you were born for such a time as this. Grandma, Grandpa, you were born for such a time as this. Recently divorced lady, you were born for such a time as this. Single dad, you were born for such a time as this. College student, you were born for such a time as this. High school student, you were born for such a time as this. Single adult, you were born for such a time as this. It is no accident that you are living in Sarnia of March of 2019. You have a destiny to fulfill. And God has a purpose for you. And in this book, we're going to see that this book offers tremendous hope. So get your hope on. Get your hope on. Take your Bibles, if you will, or electronic device, and turn to the book of Esther. And because of our time this morning, we're simply just going to do an introduction uh, to our series this morning. But I hope you'll join us over the next number of weeks as we make our way through these 10 chapters of this book. Esther, Esther chapter 1. It's a little hard to find. Open your Bible in the middle. You'll come to Psalms. Take a sharp left. You'll come across Job. And then there's Esther right there. Esther. You there? Okay, a few of you. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to this. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, some of your Bibles might say Ahasuerus too. Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching all the way from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, Media the, the princes and the nobles of the province were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed his vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave another banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed gardens of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hanging white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement or porphyry marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. This man was a party planner. 
This is one party that I've never, it lasted for six months. I mean, I consider myself to be fairly hospitable. And I can do really good for an evening, three hours. But this is a six-month party that the king is putting on so everybody can see who he is and what kind of king he is. This story that we're going to be looking at happens in the citadel of Susa. This is the center of power for the entire world. See, Xerxes is the most powerful man in the world. And he dominates the entire world. There is no one. He's second to no one. And as we make our way through this book, through this story, we're going to come to understand that God can come to any place of power. It doesn't matter who is the reigning king. It doesn't matter who is the president. It doesn't matter who is the prime minister. It doesn't matter who's living in Buckingham Palace. It doesn't matter who's living on Sussex Drive. It doesn't matter who's living at the White House. God can go to any place of power. There is no place that God cannot be found. And as we read through that, this book, it will be a constant reminder. There is no place that God can't go despite how scared and ill-equipped we might feel. By the way, this whole time period was predicted years and years and years at a time by Daniel. I don't know if some of you may have read through the book of Daniel. He predicted all of this, the, the, the empire, the Persian empire. He talked about the Babylonian captivity and that one day that, that would fall to a, another empire, which was the Persian Amids. And that one day that would fall to the Greek Empire. And that one day that would fall to the Roman Empire. And, and Daniel had foretold all of that years and years ahead of time. So let me just give you a, a little bit of a review as to what's happening in, in this time of Esther. You remember, of course, that Israel, uh, that God had set up this royal line in Israel. And it started with, with King David. And then, of course, King David had a, had a son named Solomon, and it was like the golden age of Israel, prosperity and peace for everybody. But then Solomon died. And then a fight broke out. Who's going to be the next king? We've got the northern part of the country that want uh, one king. You've got the southern part of the country that wants another king. And so the, the country divides. And so let me just kind of give you just... Draw, I, I could act it out or draw it out. I, I'm just going to try to draw it out, Okay. So here we have the, the Mediterranean Sea, okay? Can, can you see that, MS? Can, can you see that in the back? No. Do you want me to, hello? You, can you see that? Okay. So then we have uh, Israel, right? And so we have the uh, northern, we'll just call it the northern kingdom, and we have the southern kingdom. Remember we have the uh, Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River? Anybody remember that? And then down here we had the Dead Sea, and there was Jericho right here, and then there was Jerusalem right there. And then right over here, in Mont like we have Syria. We got Syria there. We got Jordan down there. And then right over here, we have uh, Iraq, okay? And then Iran. And then way over here, we have India, okay? And between these two countries, the Persian Gulf. By the way, Xerxes is king over all of this and way out over here in Greece, like the known world. He is the king of it all. And here is the Persian Gulf. 
And here's Susa, where the power happens. As I said to you, Solomon has died, and now there's a fight in north and the south, and so the countries divide right around here. Jericho up north, Jerusalem down below. After they divided, about 200 years after the northern kingdom, they were taken into captivity, captivity by the Assyrians. Oh, 200 years. None of the kings, none of them that led the country in godliness, it was all, they were evil kings, and, and so they were taken, and, and then in the southern kingdom, there were a few kings that followed after God. But about 400 years after they divided, then they were taken into captivity. So, at that particular time, right over here in Iraq, which is where Babylon was, modern day Iraq is where Babylon was, See, they had conquered all of this, and they said they could, you could stay there, but they started to rebel over here, and so King Nebuchadnezzar sent a thousand miles to Jerusalem, and the brain, the, uh, the brain drain took place. He took the smartest. He took the best. He took the nobles, and he took them a thousand miles back to Babylon to morph into the culture. And so Daniel, of course, had predicted uh, about this, the next empire that would come, and Daniel actually was alive when the Persian Empire had taken over from Babylon. And I, I don't really fully understand, to be honest with you, but when, when the Persians took over, Medes and Persian, the first king, Cyrus, allowed Zerubbabel and about 50,000 people to make this 1,000-mile journey back to Jerusalem to build the temple, because the temple was in ruins. And so he sent Zerubbabel back, and they began. But things weren't going so well. And so then Ezra, there's a book in the Bible, Ezra takes a group of people, and they go back to help because things are, there's just, things are not working well. And of course, then you remember Nehemiah then takes another big group. He's allowed to go back because the walls around the city have crumbled down. During the 60 years that the temple is, is being rebuilt, where Zerubbabel and Ezra are trying to gather the people to rebuild the temple, this is what's happening. Esther, the story of Esther is taking place while the temple is being rebuilt. Esther and her family have decided to stay back. They were free to go and make that thousand mile trip, but a number of Jews had made the decision to stay Right, they had already morphed into the culture. It had become their home. They'd been there for so many years. This is where the story of Esther takes place during that 60 years of building the temple. And Daniel saw it all come to pass. In this book, you may be tempted to say, well, I don't see God anywhere here. You're telling me in this place up here, God's at work? Uh, maybe God's work over here because it's a thousand miles away. This is kind of, well, I know he has a love for Israel, the Jewish people. So God may be at work here, but you're telling me that here God's at work? It seems to be a thousand miles away from where God does his work. And so though we don't see his name in the book, he is everywhere in every page of the book. It's like his thumbprint has been put on every page the thumbprint of God. And just like you and I are tempted to believe that God is nowhere to be found in our circumstances, 
We're reminded of the song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. You know the song? He's got the whole world in his hands. Okay, that's great to know he's got the whole world in his hands. But does he, got, does he have this 220-pound, six-foot man in his hands? Like, does he have my kids in his hands? Does he have my career in his hands? Is my marriage, though, in his hands? That's the question we ask. Sometimes when we can't, when we can't see God, we feel like he's given us a silent treatment. Some of us may know what that's like. It's maybe happened a couple times in a marriage. You know, someone gets mad at the other spouse and you just you shut down. And you kind of get the silent treatment. Or maybe it happens within friendships. And you go to your friend like, is everything okay? You're very quiet. And nope, everything's fine. And you kind of feel that silent treatment. And sometimes that's how we feel with God. That he's given me the silent treatment. Because I can't see him. I can't feel him. I don't sense his presence here. He's not talking to me. And so there, our conclusion is, he must not be here. But I'm telling you, many times, God is just in the shadows. But he's always there. Like he's always there. Sometimes we just don't see him as clearly. We wish that he would make himself a little more clear. But I'm telling you, he is always there. But we're tempted to say, God, why are you mad at me? God, you know where I live. Have you forgotten uh, my situation? Let me give you a piece of encouragement. Just turn over to Ephesians. It's amazing. These are great words. In Ephesians, there's a couple words there I think that will really encourage you today when you're wondering, where's God? in this mess of mine that I find myself in. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God is working out everything in conformity to his will. Friend, he is working it out. Sometimes I, I feel like he, he can't be found. I, and I know that sometimes my feelings deceive me. But I'm telling you right from here, Ephesians 1.11 says, but God is working it out to the conformity of his will. He's working it out. Sometimes we wish he would work out in front of us so we could see it. But many times he's working it out behind the scenes of our life. But he is working it out. That's the truth. He's working it out to the conformity of his will. I know that sometimes I wish God would just audibly say to me, don't worry, Donald, I'm working it out. I think a lot of us wish that God would just audibly say it. You can trust me, I'm working it out. I know all of us. I love the, the thrill, the chill that goes up and down my back when God does something miraculous and his whole glory is put on display and we see the miraculous. Oh, I love when God does that. But oftentimes he just works through the natural events. Many times God just works through the mundane, trivial things of our life. But he is working it out. The conformative will. 
You take that, and you multiply it with Philippians. If you have your Bibles, you can. It's Philippians 2.13. You take Ephesians 1.11. You, you put it with Philippians 2.13. And in Philippians 2.13, it says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God is working it out, listen to this, in you. <laughs> it's not that he's just working it out in the form of his will. I love that part. He's working it all out in you. That's God. When you feel like you can't find him, when you feel like it's so quiet and you're wondering where's the presence of God, he's working it out in you. That's the promise to us. Working it out in you, Mom. Working it out in you, Dad. Working it out in you, single adult. Working it out in you, college student. He's working it out in you. Do you hear what I said? God is working it out. So the question we may ask ourselves, are we overly persuaded to believe that God will do what he's promised to do? Or do we read something like that and go, that's true maybe for someone else. I don't know that. I don't know if that's, know if that's true for me. As we make our way through this book, this morning we, we just wanted to introduce it, but as we make our way through this book, I hope that you are so encouraged that though God is not, to, his name is not to be found, you're gonna, you're gonna see him all over the place. And you're going to go, well, you're not going to ask the question, where is God? You're going to say, well, where is God not in this story? Like, he's everywhere. Everything, all these events that are happening. Because you know why? Because he's working it out to the conformity of his will. And he's working it out in you. In you. He's working it out. So I want to encourage you, be overly persuaded that God will do what he's promised to do in your life. Thanks for listening, and consider joining us live on Sundays at 9.15 and 11 a.m. For our address, directions, and any other information, find us online at templebaptist.com. There's no